I was reading about a fellow who had a forgetful moment, and that was a senator from New York. He was traveling, and he couldn't find his ticket that he had. And when the conductor came by, and the conductor who knew him said, Senator, don't worry. He said, you can always just mail it to us. I know you, you ride the train. He says, that's not the point. He says, I need to find the ticket. I don't know where I'm going. So, you know, that, <laughs> that happens to some of us, that we have those moments. It gets to be a problem when we as Christians become forgetful. When we forget some of the good things, like we forget that we had made a commitment in baptism, like we forget we made a commitment at camp, we forget we made a commitment to read our Bible, we forget that at times, we, we even forget the promises of God. At times we forget to pray, we forget how to interact with one another, we flip back to the old way, the way we normally do things. There are some times that, quite frankly, we get so caught up with things, we forget how to maintain joy in our life. And that happens to us. And one of the sad times of the year that happens to us is the holiday season. is that joy-filled time, but we get so busy, we get so caught up, and things happen that some of us, we don't want, don't want to sing those songs because we don't feel, we don't experience, we don't express, and we don't, we don't enjoy that real peace and that joy and that rejoicing of the Lord. There's a book for you. The book is Philippians. Paul wrote it 10 years after he administered. He is going to focus in this book on the idea of joy. He is going to focus on the idea that what you need to do is to have that peace of God and that encouragement of the Lord. And so he's writing this book. And in this book, he mentions this joy, this respect, this whole idea a number of times that he has it in the book. And on top of it, as he's going through, he's basically reminding us what the Lord Jesus Christ had said. Jesus Christ had told his disciples that I'm speaking all these things unto you that my joy might remain in you and that it might become overflowing. That it just kind of oozes out of your life. The Lord wants us to have that joy. He wants us to have that thrill. So Paul writing says, okay, Philippians, here, I'll give you some formula. I'll give you some ideas about how to maintain joy in your life. While he's writing it, he's also giving his personal example that in chapter 3, verse 17, he says, follow after me. Now, Paul was a joy-filled Christian. Even in the times that he is writing this book, he is sitting in prison and he keeps on rejoicing. He keeps on talking about the joy that I have in the Lord. And so he tells the brethren, hey, here, just by, by, by following my example. That's what I want to focus on this morning. Paul's example in chapter one. If we do that, we will genuinely have joy. Now, where does that start? How does that work? Well, from his example, here's the key thought that I got out of chapter 1. From Paul's example is we really need to, first of all, control our minds. We can't control our circumstances. We can't control all the events. We can't control other people. But one thing we can't control is how we think. And if we think a proper way, we will be able to maintain joy through Thanksgiving. Even when you get together with those relatives that aren't so thrilling. Even when some things happen over the holidays that aren't so exciting. You know, the turkey burns, or, you know, the freezer goes out the night before after everything is cooked. And you have these difficult moments. How do I maintain joy? There's four areas that we need to work on with our thought process. One area is this. We need to think right about our companions. We talked about this last week. Be with me in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he's focusing on his companions where he says in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Basically, Paul's thankful for these people. All of them, including the officers, including those who weren't getting along. He is thankful for them. And we're going to find out even some who weren't thankful for him. He is, gra- he is gracious in saying, I still thank God for you. 
You don't like me, but I, I thank God for you. And he tells them about it. He lets us and he lets them know, I am really thankful for the people around me. And he expresses it. And so when he has thoughts about these people, he is thinking constructively, positively about others. Can we make this suggestion without repeating last week's message? That the way you think about the people around you will make a big difference how you experience joy this holiday season. If you are thinking in a positive way and giving thanks for your family members, even the ones who are coming to visit who will stay longer than what you want them to, if you are giving thanks for the privileged opportunity to even have family with you, there are going to be some here who wish they could. There are some here whose family, they will never get together on this side of glory again. You have a and I have a privileged opportunity. And as we give thanks for those individuals, truly it will impact our life as we practice in our minds and in our hearts a thanksgiving for the people around us. It will create in our minds a better spirit, a more joyful spirit. That's one area we need to work on. But let's develop something new here this morning. Let's develop the thought based upon chapter 1 starting in verse 12. How we need to think right about our circumstances. Paul did just that. Paul has some difficulties that are happening in his life. He talks about it in chapter 1, verse 7. He talks about his bonds. He talks about it in verse 13. Again, that he talks about his bonds in Christ. He talks about it where he is in chapter 1, verse 29, suffering for their sake. He talks about it in verse 30, a conflict. What is he referring to? He's referring to what's happening to him that he is in jail at this time because he preached the gospel. Not because he did something foolish, not because he attacked somebody, he's preached the gospel. Because he has preached the gospel, his enemies have lied about him. They have accused him. He has been jailed. He has been hauled all the way to Rome now where he is going to be tried and the Jews want him killed. And he is rejoicing in the Lord. Why is that? How is that? How is it possible when he is facing a potential life-threatening sentence? How is it that he can have joy? Because there is two, thought, two areas that Paul focused on. Two thoughts that he kept in his mind as he looked at his different difficulties. He looked and said this. My trials are opportunities. They aren't problems. They're potentials. He talks about that starting with verse 12 of chapter 1. Look at how he says. But I would, but I would you should understand understand, brethren, that the things which have happened to me, he says, have, hap- have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, he said, they are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed are preaching Christ of envy and strife. Let's jump down. And he says in verse 17, but others of love, knowing that I'm set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, he goes on, he says, in, or he says, in whether in, in every way, in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. And he goes on, talks a little bit more that we'll pick up. What he is saying is basically this. When I look at my trial of being in jail, I see it as an opportunity, as an opportunity to build a bridge with the loss, an opportunity to make more contact with people that I not, otherwise would not come in contact with. And so he's looking and he's saying that this has fallen out unto me. The verb basically has, it's happened and it continues to happen. That what is happening happening to me is the furtherance of the gospel, a military term. The idea is that what it has is this idea of plowing through and making roads for the troops to come through. Somebody's going ahead and they're, they're laying the stones like for the Roman army and clearing the path in the woods. And he says, that's what the gospel is, is happening. These trials are opening up opportunities for us to march through, but I am plowing the way through this trial. I am cutting towards a gospel message with the guards that are next
next to me. And he says, here it is. He says, my bonds, they are manifesting Christ in every which way. In the house of the praetorium. The palace is the idea of the official residence. And he says in all these other places that we are here, we are presenting Jesus Christ to these people. So I see my, uh, my challenges. Basically, I'm not a defendant. I'm a witness. I'm not one that's on trial. I'm the one that's going to take the truth and I'm going to share it with other people. My trial, my difficulty can be a triumph by me looking and saying this is an opportunity to share the word of God. Now, Paul says, okay, I did this and I think this. In Ephesians, when he's writing out of prison again, he says, I'm a prisoner for, for of Rome. But in actuality, while I'm in, prisoner, uh, while I'm in prison, I'm an ambassador for Jesus Christ. So I find this to be a really good thing. Now, you and I might want to ask this question. Did Paul's attitude of being a witness, did it really work? Did it help? Was he really making impact? Here he is sitting in prison. Were the soldiers listening to him? Were the people in the praetorium, the people who would bring food, or the people that he had come in contact, was it effective? It sure was. If you read in chapter 4, as he's closing this book, he says, hey, I want to give you greetings, and I want those who are chiefly of the household of Caesar's facility. In other words, people were getting saved in Caesar's household. Why? Paul's attitude, his joy, his, his looking and saying, this is an opportunity to praise God. Isn't that what happened when he first came to Philippi? When he is put in prison, what did he and Silas do all night long? Instead of moping and complaining, they were singing praises. The earthquake comes, and what does the jailer do? The jailer who's been listening to their singing. The jailer who has heard them and seen their attitude being different than most people. What does the jailer come running in and ask? Good sirs, what must I do to be saved? Does anybody, does anybody in your realm of work, your family, watch you and come after a while and say, how do you handle your trials with joy? How is it that you have this strength and you don't feel like you have it? But because you've had an attitude of looking at the trials, not as something that destroys, but something that God can use, you just approach it differently. And they see that. And they see that there is a peace of mind, a peace of heart. And they come and they say, tell me, how'd you do that? How did you handle that? And here we find Paul saying, okay, one of the reasons I can rejoice is I look at my trials as a mission field. I look at them as opening up doors that never otherwise would be opened unto me. Isn't that what happens when we see people in the hospital? People going through an illness? Isn't that attitude like Warren Wolf's to say that God gave me this cancer so I can witness to the doctors and the nurses that I would never otherwise see? Isn't this what happens at times when we've seen, and our church has had more than its fair share of death lately. Isn't this what happens when people go through that, that you pray and say, God, use the home going of one of my family members, my spouse, my child, my parent. Use it so that we can see the gospel presented and people get saved. Doesn't that help endure the difficulty a little bit more? Isn't that what we see when people are struck down by job or income and the co-workers wonder how is it that you are keeping your sanity? That you aren't crumbling because you have a mindset that God can use this and God is going to shift me and put me in a new mission field. 
This is exactly what we're talking about with the insert that talks about some of the funds that we have been distributing. We've given funds to a mission field down in Haiti through a church that, we, that we've had communication with. That they are reaching out into the earthquake victims with a variety of different helpful things that they can use so as to not only provide physical assistance but lead into the opportunity to share the gospel. The refugee camps in Iraq. We can, for $30, provide food for a family of six. We can help them out for a period of a couple weeks. We've invested several hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, to help buy some of those packages. So that as they take into this area of the refugee camps, where there are thousands of individuals, they are now starting Bible studies that have to be underground in those refugee camps. But they have seen dozens of people come to know the Lord. Doesn't God have a specialty in using trials to work out something good? I mean, look at his own son going through the trial of the cross, and yet it brings out glory. You and I should look at our trials and say, they're not a a time to defeat us. They're a time to build us. They're a time that God can say, I'm going to build up contact with the loss and something else that's provided. He says in this text that what it did is not only provided opportunities to preach the gospel, but he saw his trials as opportunities to, prov- to build more courage in the believers. Look what he says. My bonds, in verse 13, are manifest in the palace, and many of the brethren, verse 14, in the Lord, are now waxing confident because or by my bonds, and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. What's he saying? He's saying that before some of these believers... Some of those that were there were not in Philippi, were not sharing the word of God. I'm sorry, in Rome. Some of them were apprehensive. Some in Philippi as well. They were not sharing because Paul was there. He would do the job. But now that he's absent, he's saying they're stepping up. They're doing the witnessing. Now in my absence, they're going around and they're sharing the word. They filled in the different spots that he says, I can see that what's happening is God is using my trial for others to become much more bold. For others to become stronger in the Lord. I guess I can best illustrate it this way. That one of our missionary families is experiencing this right now. When we sat with the Newtons last week, and they are, they are not having a good time, a fun time, a hilarious time with this cancer. It is very difficult. They don't know how life-threatening it is. They just know it has disrupted their life at this point. They won't know until after they do more tests exactly what the depth of this cancer is, what they can do for surgery. And so they're in this limbo time these last few months, but they're doing the treatments. One of the things that they told us when we were with them to spend time and just to be an encouragement to them was they are finding some bright spots. And one of the bright spots they're finding is that they've now been in communication with people back in Portugal. And their church before, they were laboring, they were doing all these things, setting up the Bible studies, having the prayer meetings, and trying to do the teaching, and inviting different people in the church to get involved. But people were apprehensive. People were holding back. And so he said, now that we are absent, some of the men have stepped up to the plate. Some of the men have said, well, we need to have preaching. Alan's not here. I'll preach. I'll preach. I'll preach. And so on a regular basis now, these last few weeks, several of the different peoples are taking and filling in the gap and are becoming the leaders that they should have been before. But they hesitated. They were letting the Newtons do it, so to speak. They heard just from some of the teens this past week, they got a card from some of them, who said after the camps that they've been running the last couple of years, they had a video card, and it, it was a very expressive. There was a lot of crying on the card, moving to tears. But at the same time, they were saying, we have seen how much you have loved us. 
And now that you can't be with us anymore, we know that we have to love one another better than what we did. And so there's peoples that are filling up. Alan told me, he said, you know, for prayer meeting, we couldn't get people. They wouldn't come. They wouldn't come. Now they decided that they need to pray more because of the issue with the Newtons. That prompted some of those peoples to, to be more fervent in prayer. Now, every week, they're getting together on their own, in their own homes with others, and they're building up this prayer team that they didn't build up before because we can let them do it. We can let them do it. They can take care of it. They got it covered, but now they aren't there anymore. And so from Alan and Barb's perspective, their thought is other people are waxing confident because of our cancer. And we are rejoicing in that. That other people are becoming more bold in the faith. Other people are becoming more focused in the faith. And they sat there and said, all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. And so they're rejoicing in that. Now here's the question that you and I have. Okay, is the Newtons, Paul, they can see that others are being built up by the trials that are going on in their own life. And they are thankful for that. Are you thankful for the trials that help your friends, others around you, to build up in the Lord? Do you look for the good in the trials? One of the good is that it creates the opportunity for contact with the lost. One of the goods is it builds up courage in the life of the saints. One of the goods is this, verse 14. There's a greater closeness to God Almighty because of the trial. Do you see it in verse 14? In verse 14, many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak. But we go a little bit further. I wanted to be in verse 19. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. He is confident that he is going to be rescued. His salvation is the idea of, I probably, this, this prison sentence isn't going to be death. And it doesn't, ha- doesn't end up that be. That's the case. He ends up getting out. He'll get rearrested later on, and that'll lead to his execution. But at this point, he's saying, I'm becoming more and more confident that what's going to happen is I'm going to get out. And part of the reason that I'm getting confident, part of the reason that, that this, is, this is becoming you know, something that I'm enduring better and better as time goes on is because of your prayers. He says, your prayers are working. In other words, what happened is during his trial is some of the people rallied to praying for him. As they prayed for him, they drew closer to the Lord while they were pleading Paul's needs. Isn't that the case that sometimes God puts into our church life? Individuals who have heart attacks. Individuals who have cancer. Individuals that we are going to rally around in prayer. And as we pray for them, who gets closer to Christ? We do. We do. And God uses those trials to help us out. Some of you know exactly what I mean for your children. You know exactly what I mean for your brother, your sister, your parent, your spouse. When you heard of some terrible situation they were in, you became more anxious in prayer. You became more committed to prayer. You grew closer to the Lord because of their trial. And he says that happens. And he says not only is it the prayer part that draws people closer. He said me personally. He says here's what I'm experiencing. A closeness to the Lord. Look what he says at the end of verse 19. The supply of the spirit. The word supply is that comes from a choir word. A word that has to do with the choir master of those days. Would provide all the funds needed to pay for the gowns. The program. The backdrop of any type of opera or whatever musical piece that they would put together. He says, somebody would fund this. Somebody would invest in this. He says, that's what the Spirit's doing in my life. The Holy Spirit is working in my life, providing. 
at his expense everything I need to be able to go through to make a presentation of glorifying Christ. He's giving me the strength. He's giving me the stamina. He's giving me the comfort. He says I'm experiencing the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life and it is just a thrill and I'm rejoicing in my trial because it is bringing me closer to Christ. It is bringing others closer to Christ. I'm enjoying my trial because it is helping others to stand up and be bold. I'm enjoying my trial and rejoicing because it is an opportunity for me to share the gospel. And so Paul is concluding here that his trial is something that is positive for himself and for people around him. And that's the way it's supposed to work in our life. Is that we're supposed to be able to have that attitude where we respond to our trials. Where we say, okay, in the middle of the trial, I'll pray more. In the middle of the trial, I'll love more. In the middle of the trial, I'll have my priorities readjusted. In the middle of the trial, I'm going to rejoice more. Does that happen? It doesn't happen if you don't have the right mindset. If you're approaching the trial and you're coming to your circumstances with gloom and doom, you aren't drawing closer. You aren't a good witness. You you aren't impacting others to draw closer to Christ. You have to have the right attitude. It starts here. It starts here. Where you say, I'm going to think right about this. I'm going to see the difficulties that I face as opportunities. By the way, I said there was two thoughts that he had. Not only did he say that my trials are opportunities, but there's some other thought that ran through his mind. Let me just highlight just quickly. He says, I see my trial as temporary. It is an opportunity for spiritual ministry and growth. It is only going to last for a short time. How do we know that? Well, look at the several passages. He says that I see my trial as not being long term. I know it's going to turn to my salvation. In verse 19. He makes that comment further down in verse 25. Having this confidence, I know, he says, that I shall abide and continue with you all for the furtherance of joy and faith. He says in verse 26, that your rejoicing may be more abundant before me, he says, by my coming to you again. He sees it as temporary. This isn't permanent. This is something that isn't going to be long-lasting. We will get through it. The old idea, this too shall pass. It makes a huge difference when you have the right thoughts. When you see the trial as something that is temporary, something that is an opportunity. Think right about your companions. Think right about your circumstances. Think right about your critics. Paul had some critics. Who were they? Who were those individuals? You know, sometimes we just don't know who they are. In Paul's case, they happen to be some friends, supposedly. You know, there are some times that, you know, there's moments in our life we just don't know about certain people. I, I tell you what, there's some people I just don't know about when it comes to birthday cards. Okay? They're not to mention any names, but Fran Fortney's husband is, uh, <laughs> is an individual who says, you know, friend, 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 friend. And then he sends the weirdest cards that is, the, what is he doing? He sent me a card a few years ago that said this. He said, uh, and by the way, he sends cards the great way. He never signs them. So then I can send them to somebody else. But uh, he sent me a card a few years ago that said this. He said, now that you've turned another year older, I have a message from God for you. See you soon. <laughs> That's a friend. This is Fran Fortney's husband's card, not to mention his name. This is this year's. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So tell me, what was it like? (laughs) Where are you? He's hiding. So who are our friends? (laughs) 
Paul, Paul wasn't sure about his. Now, when he talks about this in this passage, by the way, Mark, thanks for the cards. I appreciate it. In, the, in, in Paul's writing, he's going to say this about, about people. Look at down verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, some of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add to my bonds, the others of love. Who are these people? Now, in the book, Paul will write about people who are teaching false doctrine. He spends chapter 3 warning about these people who are twisting the truth. That's not who he's talking about in this verse. What he's talking about in this verse are not some of the Judaizers, the unbelievers that are coming and distorting truth. What he's talking about in this verse are some of the believers. He has talked about many of the brethren, and then he talks about some. So it's some of the brethren who are here, who are giving the word of God out. They are preaching the word of God. These are people that Paul has ministered to. These are people that Paul has sacrificed, and they're preaching the word. The problem is not their message. The problem is not that they're giving some untruth or twisting the truth. They're giving a clear truth. So Paul is not, is not focused on saying, okay, we've got to correct the doctrine. No, this is, this is not about doctrine. They're preaching, you must be born again. They're preaching clear, simple gospel truth. The problem is their attitude. The problem is not the message, but it's their motivation. While Paul is in jail, they are all of a sudden jumping up and saying, we're going to preach. And we're going to give a message, a good message. But we're giving it out of bad motives. What, which tells you and me this. There are people sometimes that can do good things with bad motives. There's preachers that can do that. There are Sunday school teachers. There are deacons that can do that. There are pastors that can do that. There are, there are workers that can do this. That we could be doing what we're supposed to do, but with bad motives. That's what's concerning Paul. And in this case, these people with their bad motives, their problem leads to how they present the truth. He says, some are preaching out of jealousy. They want to divide. That's the envy. That's the strife. They're trying to divide individuals. They're trying to show up Paul. There are some people, he says, that they're preaching out of contention. They're in competition. For numbers? For ele- eloquence? I don't know. But they're doing it with, with bad motivation. They're not preaching sincerely. Sincerely means to be single-minded, to be single-focused. Here these people aren't doing it just for the cause of glorifying Jesus Christ. Maybe they're, maybe they're doing it because they want to be popular. And it's all about making a reputation about myself. So I want people to laud me. Maybe that's what it is. That's what he understands. But some of them are doing it to supposing to add friction to his bonds. That is rub sore. He says, and so their motivation is to cause me pain, to cause me angst. And they're doing it. They've become bold. They're out preaching. And why are they doing it? I don't know. But they're making a show. They're not genuine. They're, they're presenting truth, but it's, but it's not really from their heart. It's not really for, for the cause of Jesus Christ. But the truth is getting out. Now, why they are doing it, I don't know. Maybe Paul preached something they didn't like. He stepped on their toes and they, they were bitter about it. Maybe he didn't let them lead the way they, they thought they should lead when he was there helping to organize the church. I don't know. Maybe they, 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 they were jealous of Paul's influence. Though he's been gone for 10 years, he still has influence. And they don't like it that they don't have the same influence as Paul. I don't know. Maybe it's because they think, yeah, Paul is successful. And you know, when people become more successful than us, we get jealous. 
And we don't, we, we, we want to tear down their successes. And we want to find fault in their successes. I don't know. Maybe it's they didn't like his mannerisms. Maybe he didn't comb his tuft the right way. You know, we don't know what it is. You know, maybe they thought he was too brazen, too bold, too, too forward. Maybe they thought he talked too fast. I don't know. We don't know what the reasons are, but we know this. We know that his critics, they were there. And everybody knew about him. And they were giving out the word of God. And Paul had to respond to them. And Paul's response is really interesting. When Paul says, okay, there's people. They don't like me. They don't like me. That's the bottom line. They don't like me. But he says, notwithstanding, in every which way. You know, basically, it's like, well, what of it? What of it that they don't like me? I don't care if they don't like me, he says. The point is, whether, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is being preached. The word of God is being given out. And the word of God is powerful and quick and sharp and can divide asunder. And the word of God, where it, we will not return unto God, void. And he says, I'm just thankful that the word of God is getting out. Now again, this isn't false doctrine. This is wrong attitudes. This is personality conflict. But he is rejoicing in the fact that the truth is being presented. He is rejoicing in the fact that, that these people are giving out the word and others can get born again. The bottom line is, he's saying, it's not about me. It's not about me becoming popular or influential. It's about Christ being magnified. And as long as Christ is being magnified, that's all I care about. I don't care if people like me. I don't care if people think I'm doing things right or wrong. He says, I don't care about, you know, the looks. I care about Christ being magnified and souls getting saved. And so when it comes to his critics, they didn't destroy his joy and his rejoicing. Because they didn't get under his skin. They didn't get under, under his, his, his walk with the Lord that, you know, okay... Somebody's upset with me. So now I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, that's it. I'm just going to stop serving the Lord. Not Paul. Not Paul. Paul had a different attitude. An attitude that when he was attacked, he handled it right. What do you do when you're attacked? When you're criticized? When your kids are criticized? How do you respond? When somebody, you know, says that, you, you know, you don't do this or you don't do that. You're not loving enough. You're not clear enough. You don't preach long enough. You don't preach short enough. Okay, it goes both ways, trust me. Yeah. You know, when somebody says, you know, you know, you should use better speech in the pulpit. This is all I got, folk. Okay, it's, not, it's just, you know, what do you do? What do you do? Do you get so upset with somebody attacking you that you lose your testimony before your other coworkers? What do you do when all of a sudden, you know, somebody's, somebody's saying something about you. Do you have to get the last word in? Do you, are you the one that has to prove them wrong and you right? And to keep the feud going. You know, how do you respond to criticism? Boy, that makes a big difference. We're all going to get hit at some time. Or we're, should I rephrase that? We're all getting hit at some time. You know, somebody's going to find fault. What do you do? Are you able to maturely, like Paul said, hey, wait a minute. If it's just about the way I comb my hair or don't comb my hair, if it's just about the way of some mannerisms, yeah, as long as we're getting out the gospel, 
As long as the person, are we going to, bah. I care that the building is comfortable. I care that it looks nice because I think it's testimony. But are we going to get so upset that we divide a church over a color of a carpet? Are we going to get so upset that, oh, wait a minute, you know, somebody took my pew? Are we going to get so bent out of shape, you know, that the lights aren't as bright as what they were? It doesn't bother me. Not. <laughs> I mean, does it, we have to address it. We know we have to address it, but is it worth losing our joy over? The answer is no. No. It'll get taken care of. We'll address things, but come on. What does the world look at and see when Christians in churches fight and battle over dumb stuff? What do relatives look and see two believers arguing over some heirloom that, quite frankly, neither one of you are going to have in eternity? You're both going to leave it here, too. You seriously, do you know what I mean? That when people look and say, they're believers, they're supposed to get along. Now, when it comes to the truth, we better fight for the truth. We don't fudge on this. But when it's you and me, we can fudge all we need to as long as the truth is getting out. We can be saying, okay, I'm just going to do what's right. I'm going to do what Nehemiah said. They were accusing me, Nehemiah said, they're accusing me of trying to be a dictator. God knows, I know, the people know it's not true. Rather than get into a verbal battle, I'm just going to walk away and say, it's not true, and I'm going to keep busy proving it's not true. And he's just got back to work. And focus on serving the Lord, winning the lost. That's Paul's attitude. When it came to his critics, he didn't have to keep the battle going. It was, I need to get the word out. We need to get the word out. That's the way we should be. Think right about the criticisms and the critics. What we want to focus on is saying there's something bigger than you and me. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the message of Jesus. Let's get it out. So what do we do? We work on thinking right about companions, circumstances, critics. Can you give me the last one and do this quickly? Think about your commitment. Think about your commitment to Christ. A lot of you made that. You made a commitment to Christ. You got saved. You then followed through with baptism. You yoked up with church. And you made commitments to Jesus Christ. Some of you teens did that at camp. You walked out of, that, out of the services. You came into this auditorium. You prayed. You made commitments to Christ this past summer. Let's think about that commitment. What does Paul say about his commitment? There's a story that came out several years ago in Life magazine. There's a guy who's writing an article, and he's watching Meryl Streep doing the acting on this time. I'm not advocating Meryl Streep. I'm just using it for an illustration. She's there. She's on the scene, and she's doing a death scene in this one film that she was, she was um, um, uh, getting recorded. And as she does it, she's supposed to be this tramp woman who is dying. And so what she does is she, to get prepared, the writer of the article said it was amazing. She grabbed huge bags of ice. She held them to herself for up to a half hour. She was somewhat shivering. She became more pale. And they asked her what she was doing. She said, I wanted to feel, know what it's like to just be that cold like a corpse. And then they went into the scene. And as they're shooting the scene, this writer who had seen many different, different scenes done before in Hollywood, with a veteran director sitting next, right next to him, he said, there she is. She's doing the scene. She's died quote in the movie she died and her boyfriend is coming up and he's trying to revive her and he's soaring over her and they're watching as they're going through the lines and all of a sudden the writer hit the director and said look at her she's not moving something wrong with her they stopped the scene 
to check if she really died. They went back. They realized she was just acting. They went back. They paused again a few minutes later, thinking she hasn't breathed for a long time. They did that several times. And even after the scene was all done, she laid there immobile for several minutes before finally she got up and moved. You know what they said about her? Everybody sitting around, and especially the director, he voiced it out loud. They gave her a round of applause, but the director said, that's an actress. That's an actress. Has anybody ever looked at you and said, now that's a Christian? You were so convincing. They paused and they said, that's it. That's what a Christian is like. You see, Paul is writing and he says, in my life I have two goals. Look what he says in this passage. He says, here's my two goals. Here's, they're, they're very simple in my life. He said in this text as he's writing, according to my earnest expectation, my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed. That's one goal. His one life is that nothing. Nothing would blot my service, my test, nothing. That I'm living so consistently that nothing is going to mar my reputation that I'm a Christian. And then he goes on, he says, As always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body. He says, that's my second goal. My second goal is to magnify Christ in the way I live. In my body. He says, basically, he's preaching a message here that D.L. Moody picked up on him. D.L. Moody made a comment. He says, Christians are microscopes or telescopes, or should be both, excuse me. They should be both a microscope or telescope. That is, that they magnify something that is small, that is overlooked at times, but it becomes very clear. We should be magnifying Christ. That his forgiveness, that his compassion is just magnified so everybody around us, it is as clear as could be, or... Like the telescope, something far away is brought so close to people that it looks right here. That's the way you and I should be living. That people can look at you and they can look at me and they see Christ written all over. The way we talk, the way we walk, the way we dress, the way we respond to trials, the way that we, we respond to coworkers. Paul was so serious about this. This wasn't something that was just a, a model, a theme, a message that was for his website. This was his real life. He said, I am so serious no matter what. Whether it be life or death, I want Christ to be magnified. Whatever God sends my way, I will magnify Christ. No matter what. No matter when. He is sitting, he says, as he's writing, as always. I'm doing this no matter where I'm at, what what time it is. I want to magnify Christ. No matter where I'm at. Sitting in jail, when I'm hungry, or when I'm full. He says, I want to magnify Christ. I want, to, I want Christ to be seen. Whether it be Christmas time, whether it be Easter, whether it be November 20th, I want Christ to be magnified. It's Sunday morning, Sunday night. Monday at work, Saturday at play, I want Christ to be magnified. This is it. I'm serious about life or death. I want Christ to be the one who is ignobled. How do you do it? How do you do it? It was right thinking. Do you want to see his right thoughts? There it is, verse 21. There's his right thought. His right thought was very simple. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. You know what it really reads? Really clearly, literally, it reads this. For me to live Christ, to die gain. That's it. That's his right thought about his commitment. 
for me to live Christ. That means no matter where I'm going. Hey, listen, some people, when we think about them, what do we think about? What are they tied to? These real characters to history or these fun peoples that come out of the comics? All of them have one characteristic. They want world domination. That's what we think of when we read these characters, whether it be a Napoleon or Alexander. When we read a character like this, what do you think of? You see a picture. Who is it? What's he known for? His whole thing was just solving mysteries. You ever see this shadow? What's he known for? He's talking about mysteries, right? You know, the horror flicks. Okay? We, we put different people up and you think, okay, we know what he was called. Right? Mr. Baseball. What was his whole life? Yeah. What do you know about this guy? It's all about football. What do you know about this guy? Three-point shooting. Okay. What do you know about this guy? It's all about swimming, right? Okay, what do you know about this guy? What was his favorite thing? What's he focused on? Picnic baskets. That was his life. For me to live is picnic baskets. That's yogis. Okay? You can do that with lots of different peoples. Here's a fellow that some of you may, may have never met before. John Baker. Beecher Baker. He's a mountain climber. He's called a free climber. It means when he climbs, he uses no ropes. Okay? And he does this, and it's his life. I think he's nuts. Okay. <laughs> I, get, I get the wiggles just looking at him hanging by his fingertips. You know what he does for his spare time for fun? When he's at home, for fun, he says, the thing I enjoy the most is grasping on to the, the door jam and just hanging by my fingertips. I can think of more thrilling things to do when I'm at home. <laughs> but, that's, but his whole life is mountain climbing. You know, when people think about you, when you come to mind, what do they think about? There's some good things. There's some good things that we'd like. Okay, yeah. They think about me. They know I'm a good shopper. They think about me. I'm a good driver. They think about me. They know that I am really classy. Not me, but whoever. Uh, classy when they dress. They think about me. They think I'm a good cook. They think about me. They think about, you know, a lot of good stuff. And there's, there's you know, there's nothing. Obviously, some of this is not me. It's you. Okay. Nice hair is not mine. Okay. Yeah. You know, you think about these, you know, people look and they say, okay, this comes to mind. Good sports person, you know, good attitude, good this, good mechanic, good, you know, whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing evil about that. But shouldn't this be our goal? That when my name comes up, they think, now that's a Christian. How does that happen? How does that happen? It happens by you and I applying ourselves to walking close to the Lord. Not, not just showing up to church, but walking close to the Lord, learning his word, praying, meditating, getting close to him, living a holy life, working that we are experiencing the cause of Christ in our heart, that we are conforming to him day in and day out. Basically that we say, for me to live is Christ. That's my goal. That's your goal. He says, that's, that's how I'm able to handle trials. It's all about Christ. It's not about comfort. It's not about riches. It's not about this, that, or the other. It's about serving Jesus Christ. That he is first and foremost in my heart, in my life, in my goals. Is that true? Well, if it's true, you know, remember it. We joke about being forgetful, but it is a shame when people forget their commitment. And they forget that they have a, they have a responsibility. He saved us for a reason. Do you, do you remember 
back in the holidays several years ago, there's this flight flying from New York down to Miami. And as they're coming in, and they're, they're, they're getting close to Miami, they did all the buttons, and the light that said the landing gear was to go down, the light didn't come on. And so they're checking. They have to, okay, we got to swing around. We have to go around. Now, what they knew was that in this same type of plane, and there were several different planes that were having problems with that bulb, that there was something wrong with that bulb and that connection, that it was real, the landing gear was down, but the bulb didn't go on. And so they were told, they had been given in their warnings and their briefings that they got to check the bulb, make sure it's in tight. So one of the, one of the co-pilots, he's working on the bulb and he's saying, you know, I, you know, I think the landing gear, it sounded like it went down, but the bulb. And so then another one of those in the cockpit got involved with fooling with the bulb. Then the pilot got involved fooling with the bulb. Do you remember what happened here? As they were flying, they got so preoccupied with the 75-cent bulb that they went into the Everglades. They crashed in the Everglades. They forgot what they were supposed to be focusing on, flying the plane. Does that ever happen to us? That we get so preoccupied with something that we forget. We're here to serve Jesus Christ. Now, you want to join the holiday? Here's it. Here's a simple, simple chapter one summary. Here's what you need to do. Think right about your companions. Think right about your circumstances. Think right about the critics that may come into your life. Think right about your commitment. You can't miss. This is a sure, guaranteed way to have joy in your life when you're thinking the right way.